the galaxy burns. The heretic falls. And the emperor protects. Welcome, Imperial citizens, to The Emperor Protects. My name is Doug, along with my co-host, Dan. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, my friend. Awesome. And we have a heck of a book today. I'm very excited about it, because I I honestly think I had to stop reading it at some point, like when I first read it, because I, I honestly didn't remember the ending. So as I'm rereading it now, I'm like, oh my god, this is incredible. <laughs> uh, we're talking all about Mechanicum, which is probably, I think, one of the more foundational books for the Horus Heresy that isn't a space marine thing right yes. okay sure. I, um and do you have any like uh, broad ideas on the mechanicum before we we jump in anymore well, there's a lot to cover in this book <laughs> i think basically you know we've got mars that is the home world of the mechanicum priesthood um and the the manufacturatoria and all the forges and stuff basically have been supplying a huge portion of the weaponry for the expeditionary fleets mm-hmm. and so Mars is incredibly valuable to both sides once the heresy starts. And it makes it such a prime target for the Warmaster's agents to come there and kind of do their chaos turn to the other side thing. And um, just to even imagine, though, I mean, we talk all the time about the the loyalist against the, you know, uh, traitor legions. Just to think that there's some kind of a schism on Mars is almost unthinkable. Yeah. You know, and it, just the fact that this book is about that is is really disturbing in some ways. For sure. And and something I kind of wanted to point out for, for viewers, because we're always approaching this as if you have never really gotten into Warhammer at all. So this is right. all new information. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mechanicum, it's easy to look at them as like, oh, this is the tech support arm of the Imperium. Mm-hmm. But they're not. They are a not equal, but they coexist with the Imperium. Um, They are their own thing. They have their own leadership structure. When we talk about forges, it's not like a room with like you know some I don't know something for pressing or grinding metal. Like forges are a nation state unto themselves, with all kinds of weapons and secrets and corridors and employees and people whose whole lives (laughs) exist within a forge. And so. The scale of what we're talking about is massive. So, like, when, uh, as Dan just pointed out, like, when there's a schism on Mars, I mean, relative in the setting, Mars is is the backyard. It's, like, in your home. So, (laughs) yes, yes. Um, And the events that we'll talk about today, uh, we'll kind of do a quick rundown of the uh, Mechanicum themselves. But really what we're talking about is both a civil war within the Imperium, of which the Mechanicum is a part, Mm-hmm. There's a civil war within the Mechanicum itself, like its own ideology is tearing itself apart as part of the bigger civil war. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a religious aspect that we will get to. So all of it, it's a lot in this book. <laughs> right. And I think to your point, you know, all the, where the, where the Mechanicum fits in is difficult sometimes to understand. Yes. But there, you know, this, one of the things is this reminded me a little bit of, what happened in the book Dune, where the Bene Gesserit's kind of planted all these prophecies among the Fremen, you know, of, of a, a person who was going to come to to save them, you know. So I'm going to disappoint you right now, Dan. I've never read Dune. I'm sorry. Okay, so I think a lot of <laughs> listeners, just there's a planet and these 
these kind of priestesses go to this planet and they just plant these prophecies among the people, kind of making it part of their folklore. And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because eventually the Savior comes to liberate them. And, you know, we got the Mechanicum has the same kind of thing that was planted by the Emperor. And there's a prophecy that everyone on Mars, and there's just, there's billions of people on Mars. You know, that's the other thing I think that a lot of people don't think about but it is a planet, and all the people there, I mean, there's humans, there's enhanced, there's all types of, you know, humans, but it is a human planet with billions of people. Yeah. yeah. And they all believe that this being called the Omnissiah is going to come to Mars um, when certain celestial bodies align in a certain way. So, you know, the moons of Mars, the two moons align in a certain way. The Emperor arrives for the first time on Mars, and this is kind of in the book. They talk about it kind of as a, you know, a set pre-setting the story, and they accept him as the Omnissiah for a lot of reasons. Just the way he arrives and the the lighting and everything else. He is the physical embodiment of the machine god, and a small thing, but very important. Um, a uh, little scene that happens is he gets out of his his ship, and there are these uh, three uh, knights of the House Tarantus that have come all the way to the top <laughs> of this huge, you know, giant mountain on Mars mm-hmm. to, to watch this. And one of the machines has had a problem with one of its joints forever. Nobody can ever fix it. And the Emperor just walks up, and it's one of the most famous quotes, I think. He just says, machine, heal thyself. Yep, yep. And all of a sudden, poof, but it's not like this is just out of context. Like millions of people have just seen this happen. So the emperor just, he just made himself their god by doing something. (laughs) He performed a real life, to them that was a miracle to heal a machine. Of course. Um, And so that's kind of the background for how we got to this. And this is hundreds and hundreds of years before the events dug on Mars as the story tells this, you know, goes on. Yes, absolutely. And, and And, very, very good synopsis there. Essentially the Mechanicum is they revere a deity that is technology based. It's a whole religion that's technology based. And so their convictions are, are kind of in line with what the emperor wants. And we'll talk about what kind of trouble that causes here in a bit, but, <laughs> um, but ultimately it's a, it's an incredibly interesting faction and uh, mm. it, it just, it has its own reflection of all the things that went wrong in the galaxy and, and frankly, how the emperor is a part of all of them, like everything that went wrong, yes. he's got some hand in. So it's just like, well, yes. yeah, he was never off to a great start. No, <laughs> And I think there are, uh, as, as we talked about that background, I think there's a few specific things we could, you know, talk about specific people as we go along. But yeah. really, the story kind of revolves about uh, a young scribe. Her name is Dahlia Scythera. Yes. And she has these connections to the ether. They don't call it the warp. You know, um, she's incredibly logical and intelligent in her thinking. So she's a big part of this. Calvor Hall, who is the fabricator general of Mars, he's the big kahuna yep. um, on Mars. And he, some things happen with him. 
Uh, and we've got Titan Legions. That's the other thing. Most of the Titan Legions that are part of the Imperium consider Mars their home world. Yes. Almost every one of them. So they are very, very much uh, connected to Mars. Uh, and then we have this weird thing that starts revealing itself in the story. There's this powerful entity that we're not sure what it really is. But we're going to find out more about it. But it's somewhere on Mars. And they're just veiled references to it early on. But those are kind of, I think, some of the main things that are going on as the story you know, kind of... Um, progresses yes and and we'll touch on those actually one of the things i wanted to point out here as we're taking you through this book because they decided to is it graham mcneil the writer i believe graham mcneil yes um he decided to basically tell the story of mars from a few different perspectives and so it rather than trying to dash back and forth like in um no, no fear where all the stories ha- are congruent and they all immediately affect one another. This book, the stories are kind of separate until the end when they kind of converge. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to follow that lead. We're actually going to do each story separately and then we'll just pause when they all kind of come together there at the end. Okay. Um, cause I think it makes the most sense for making sure, sure everyone, no one gets lost. Cause there's a lot of names in this. And that was one of the it things that us. got to me with, <laughs> with the audio book is like, who the heck is this guy? <laughs> oh, he's important. Okay, cool. 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 <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, let's start with the story of, of Dahlia. We meet Dahlia, uh, outside the principal's office. Uh, so to speak, the principal being the people who are either going to kill her or turn her into a living robot, a servitor. <laughs> and why is she outside the principal office, Dan? <laughs> So she's in the principal's office because she actually made her cogitator or computer. She improved it. Yes. And this is this is heresy. Like you you don't improve anything. Everything is as it is because it's supposed to be that way. And when you you use innovation to make advancement rather than just discovering something laying here, that's just verboten. And it is literally a capital offense. And yes. so she is being marched off to prison. Yes. It's important to remember the Mechanicum is about technology, but not innovation. There's a mm. difference. Um, yeah. And they they hit it. They started off with that of like, <laughs> she dared to give herself a software update. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit more intense than that, but you know what no I mean? People like, notice. Uh wrong yeah it's like you're thinking ten thousand times faster than you used to it's like mm. <laughs> um yeah so she's in trouble and she gets picked up by a skitari named yep. romu 31 um yeah who one of the things about dolly and we'll kind of just sidetrack about her so we don't have to keep repeating it she is connected to what they call the ether as you mentioned it's sort of like she's a psyker but she's a very specific kind of one where mm. There's something about machines. She's able to learn things, never forget them. So, uh, you know, a perfect memory. But there's also something intuitive where she can see how things are connected in ways that others can't. Or people mm-hmm. who have studied, you know, mechanica stuff their whole lives struggle to to piece together. She just intuits technology. Mm. Yes. And uh, that's how she was able to increase the efficiency of basically her brain (laughs) on her own unauthorized uh for lack of a better word and so she 
is in the principal's office for that. Romeo 31 picks her up and says, you know, we're going. She's pretty sure it's a death sentence at this point. And he takes her to meet a very special adept, a, a leader with their own forge of Mars. You want to tell us about Zeph? Yeah, Coriel Zeph is a senior tech priest, and she is the master of the Magma City. And Coriel Zeph has sent Romeo 31 uh, a protector. One of the things I want to talk about Romeo, because he is a major character. In oh, some yes. Sense, Very cool. Um, is that this is a great way, a great way that Graham shows that just because somebody is enhanced doesn't mean they're not human. Um, because mm. Roe, even though his voice is very, the way Toby Longworth reads it, his voice is very monotone, his reactions and the things he does are very human. Yes. So I think that's really cool the way he built that into his character. And he becomes basically her companion for the mm -hmm. rest of the story um, and was was sent there by Coriel Zeth, who you mentioned. And the thing about Coriel Zeth is she is just like Dahlia and that she believes that technology should advance through innovation. Yep. And she is just the master of innovation. And one of the most notable inventions of hers is something that is incredibly impactful in throughout the heresy and 40k universe, which is the new sphere. Yes. We hear about it all the time and it's just kind of randomly, you know, uh, just kind of, you know, nobody thinks about it, but she invented this thing and it's going to have in terms of the schism, some pretty significant impact. Uh, but she's also, so the new sphere is her thing, but she also wants uh, Dahlia to help her build something called the Akashic Reader. And the purpose of this machine is to find knowledge. Like, it is going to be, if it's built and everything goes well, it is going to be the source of any knowledge that humanity wants. And you're just thinking, right, when you're reading, going, this, this is just a bad idea. <laughs> There's no way this could end poorly. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so that's who Coriel Zeth is in this. Again, the Magma City is just incredible. And the technology that Dahlia sees is just blowing her away yep. as she's walking around the Magma City. Um, and, yeah, it's it's really cool because, again, Coriel Zeth is a tech priest. And she's enhanced herself. But it's really interesting that, that, that Graham stresses in his writing that she's worked really hard to maintain her femininity in terms of her appearance. Yeah. You know, her armor and all the things that she does, the way she talks and everything. And so she's tried to retain that humanity through, uh, through the mechanicum side of her, her being. So that was kind of interesting as well. Yes. 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 Um, okay. and so Zeph basically gets the A team of, of nerds so she has dahlia who's able to you know look at blueprints and intuit them like on a psychic level more so than any human ever normally could and mm -hmm. she gets a crew of like this guy's really good at machining parts and this guy is really good and this lady's really good at structure and organization she's the team lead kind of a deal and kind of puts together her wonder draft of misfits who don't really belong anywhere but all have mm -hmm. super abilities yes. and begins building yeah the akashic reader which is at first they have to figure out what it actually does. Like Zeph has these blueprints from somebody else who couldn't make it work. 
Uh, but it was all theoretical, but it, they couldn't make it. And so they had to first reverse engineer from blueprints what the actual thing does and then go back forward into making it work. And they're able to crack the code thanks to Dahlia's, uh, you know, MacGuffin ability. And um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm kind of yada yadaing it here because really it's not the process of building is is a great i think bit of story for making us fall in love with the characters but what they're building is actually really really stinking cool because after her theoretical breakthrough uh, of deciphering what it is and how to get there they actually start building it and uh what does it look like what does an akashic reader look like dan it looks like this massive chamber there, and there's a throne in the center. Oh yeah. And the, this is where the scary, scary part for me was, where they talk about the fact that this chamber literally is lined with these little <laughs> containers <laughs> yeah. that are full of psychers. Yes. And you're going, whoa. Okay, these are people, right? Mm-hmm. And there's also a an individual who is an empath. A uh, very strong empath who is sitting in the throne, and he's just kind of chilling. Like, yeah, he got him on ice. <laughs> he's, he's having conversations with Dahlia, and they're starting to kind of establish a relationship. And you know, she's she's really um, enjoying talking to him, and becomes very fond of him. And again, you just <laughs> so picture a giant dome mm-hmm. lined with psychers in these little. Uh, well, I don't know what you would call them, little capsules. Yep. And then there's a throne in the center. I, does that seem to be, I think that's a pretty good description of it. Yeah, I think um, all the psychers are blinded and uh, they're kind of just moaning and whimpering. But I kind of imagine, yeah, they're uh, I, it's sort of like the Matrix where everybody has a pod, but I think they're upright. Like they're looking down right. at yep. the center of the chamber, which is even creepier. Yes. Um, and yeah, is his name is Jonas, right? Was his name Jonas? Yep, that's his name. Our boy Jonas is just chilling until they get the Akashic Reader working, and he has every faith in Dahlia. The whole thing is, um, it's going to amplify his natural psychic abilities, and we kind of get some perspective that this chamber, sort of a goldish throneish thing, mm-hmm. um, which probably won't ever come up again in 40k history. So that's cool. <laughs> But uh, Jonas is like, yeah, we're good to go. Zeth's like, you know, I trust this because you have the warp abilities to be able to intuit technology. And right before they flip the switch and turn the thing on, Dahlia learns that the math was off. Uh, Instead of the normal, I I guess, uh, power capabilities Mm. and stuff that she had done all of the engineering design for, Zeth's idea was to take that same thing and basically point it at the Astronomicon. Uh, the center oh. of map and and basically use that as the the battery for this ability so like when this thing goes off dahlia at the last seconds like oh we need to turn this off none of this math works like <laughs> you told me we were going to use you know a triple a battery you're hooking it up to a car <laughs> yep. like this doesn't yeah anyway so they turn the thing on and two things happen one it absolutely works. <laughs> and mm-hmm. with with uh, awesome results, the Light of Terra goes straight into Jonas. He has access to all knowledge to the point where he discorporates. He no longer has a physical form. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Dahlia is trying to open the door to save him. 
And what is essentially happening is when she opens the door to the chamber, it is like walking into hell itself without a Geller field. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a psyker walking into this room that is just the most intense beacon of psychic energy to ever exist. And she watches Jonas basically evaporate. Um, all the psychers are killed. And he gives her a message. Do you want to take it for a little bit? Or do you want me to keep going? Well, I mean, he no, go ahead. Keep going. It's just that the message is really in the form of a vision. Yes. And so, and so she starts seeing things, right? Yep. Yes. And, you know, just kind of pointing this out, because I think Graham McNeil did a great job of this, is Dahlia's journey goes from learning and intuiting information to belief, prophecy, like the things that influence mm-hmm. her start to change over the course of the book. And I think that's a really cool thing. Like, because Mechanicus, or Mechanicum rather, have a duality to them of technology and religion. And so I, I felt like she explored all of that when it came to, she starts with reverse engineering blueprints, which makes sense to, I sense a disturbance in the force. <laughs> and then it has <laughs> Zeph shaking her head. Um, but yeah, she, she gets kind of sent along a series of, of breadcrumb trails and Jonas points her in the direction of the Noctis. What's the Labyrinthus? Labyrinthus. I was. I can't. I don't. I can't handle these Harry Potter level names. But <laughs> the Noctis Labyrinthus, basically the dark side of Mars that nobody wants to go to. Nobody builds forges there. Mm-mm. It's like the Here Be Dragons type of thing where we just don't go there. Um, right. And so uh, Dahlia goes to her crew. She doesn't tell Zeth what's going on about her her visions or, or pull towards the noctis labyrinth this at this point she's like i don't know if i can trust seth mm-hmm. the adept who saved her life and gave her purpose they get along well but it's like you didn't tell me that you were going to channel the might of god into this dude's skull and it got him killed so like we're not super friends right now well and this is one of the things i think you point something important out is that dahlia is a very sympathetic person she's yes she she really just loves people, you know, she loves being around people. And when she, you know, kind of, um, you know, started having this relationship, this friendship with Jonas, she just really enjoyed being around him. And so when this, you know, you talked about the Astronomicon powering, it overpowered it, like, yes, yes. And these, this thousands of psychers were just, toasted within seconds and jonas was just screaming and yep. pain. and this is this person who she really loved in a lot of ways as a friend and she's just watching him suffer just unbelievably and so you can understand why she's like what the hell was zeth yep you know she just did this and didn't think a th- no second thoughts at all she just destroyed my friend horribly in pain and now what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for I mean, ultimately, Dahlia views the test as a failure because right. there's nothing tangible to walk away with, and Jonas is dead, and Zeph's like, "This is awesome, we're crushing it," <laughs> and so <laughs> she's like, "Reset, rebuild it, let's do it again." Um, and this is where this is where Dahlia and Zeph part company. This pretty much, is, yeah. <laughs> this is definitely in the story where Dahlia's kind of done with this. And, yeah. Um, and Zeth's yeah. like, what do you mean my actions have consequences? I'm a forge priestess. <laughs> right. And 
One of the really important things, too, you talked about the Noctis Labyrinthus, is there were these visions of something he called the Dragon of Mars. Yes. So you said there be dragons. Literally, Jonas mentioned a dragon. (laughs) We we don't know what that is, but we know that's what it's called. Yeah. Um, So So, Dahlia goes back to her crew after kind of taking a, a little bit of time to heal up from the psychic explosion that she Oof. walked into and mysteriously survived <laughs> goes to her crew and they're all like on board with her um for the most part just about everybody is uh they all have different motivations for going whether they just want to see this through to the end they have a allegiance to dahlia one of the characters um goes simply because she felt terrible about what happened to jonas so it's more of a guilt mm-hmm. motivator than anything else uh, but for whatever reason, the crew who built the Akasha Greeter goes down to the Noctis Labyrinthus. And... With, excuse me, with one exception. An yes. An important exception, which is kind of the supervisor lady you talked about. Yes. She has decided that she can't go. She needs to do other things. And her staying behind has repercussions. Yes. Um, and as they're going, uh, they're just about out of... The, the initial city where they start, because it's like a whole cross in the planet to get down to where this thing is, or wherever oh. they're being pulled to. And they're on a train at one point, and a giant machine rocks up to the train tracks and just pumps it full of lead. I mean, like Bonnie and Clyde-style oh. murder fest of just tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition into this train. It's clearly trying to kill Dahlia and her crew. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some weird things about this machine, though. And as we're going through the story of survival, Dahlia herself, after her time in the Akashic Reader hellscape, has kind of kind of gotten that whole, like, I don't know, Neo from the Matrix connection to machines. He can kind of feel them, or she, rather, can kind of feel them more and intuit things on another level. She got a power up. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things she can do is, as this machine's attacking, she can kind of fool its senses, project camouflage, as it were. Yeah, And she's kind of figuring it out in real time, which is fun for me as a reader. Um, Dan, you want to talk about this machine? Because it comes up a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's, when we talk about the other pieces, you know, for the when we go into the schism part of the thing, the, this machine is really, it's called the Kaban machine, we find out mm-hmm. eventually. And we first see it actually earlier in the book. We'll talk about that part of it later. But we see it. Um, when it is um, noticed by some knights, um, yes. these same knights of the House Tyrannus we had just talked about. And um, when there's this battle going on, one of the things, it, it's basically when you think of a servitor on tracks, it looks like the bottom look kind of you can picture as a tank with treads. Yep. The top is kind of a bulbous, uh, I don't know, just a bulb, a big globe on the top. And then it has mechadendrites coming out with lasers and cannons and all kinds of stuff on it. But two things that are really interesting about this machine. One, it is intelligent, which is forbidden. Mm-hmm. Big that no, is no. absolutely forbidden. But it obviously has some kind of a very uh, advanced AI that it's you know kind of figuring things out as it's, and it's learning, which is bad. Um, and the other thing is... They notice it has void shields. Now think about that. You think about a Lehman Roost that has void shields. Yep. There is something. If the if the whole AI thing wasn't bad enough, there's something just 
totally wrong about this machine. Um, yeah, it, it has way too much technology and freedom, and oh. people are like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yep, the Kabam machine. Uh, so she's able to basically throw off the scent to the mm. Kaban machine. Um, so it goes elsewhere for the moment. And they're able to slip away. And they keep descending further. Uh, I'm going to kind of yada yada here just because the, the downward yeah. travel is, is a fun part of the book. But, you know, read it for yourself. Yes. Um, and we get down to the Noctis Labyrinthus where... Uh, Dahlia meets a very strange man. And I actually like the outline you did here in, in your show notes. Uh, can you tell us about this dude? Yeah. So they reach the dragon's prison. They go through the labyrinths and such. And she's met by the guardian of the dragon. Is his title. His name is Semyon. And Semyon is, he looks like an older man. He's got kind of a robe on, you know, kind of like you might picture an older monk or somebody like that. Yep. Um, he has apparently lived for thousands and thousands of years um, in this chamber. Um, and he was a psyker who's he's giving off like this golden light. It's really weird. Yeah. Right? There's just something going on. And he basically tells her the story of. Um, but again, he's the guardian. Of the, the dragon's there. They can kind of see what the dragon is. And we're going to let you, I think, read what the dragon is. But um, he talks about the events that led to the dragon's imprisonment. Again, this is a very detailed accounting of how the emperor captured the dragon and imprisoned it here yep. uh, all this time ago. Um, and he fought it, it turns out, Simeon says, on ancient Terra. Um, and he explains that the guardians are chosen by the emperor. Yes. So, you know, here's, here's Dahlia who is loyal to the emperor, you know, still through all the things that's gone through. Um, and she, he gives her the inside scoop now that the emperor has laid the foundations of what became Mechanicum. He is why the Mechanicum even exists. Yes. Uh, because he, uh, of all the things he does wrong, one of the things he did right was he foresaw the need of the forges on Mars. He knew that the Imperium was going to need this kind of just mega technology manufacturing uh, center in his Imperium. And so he, you know, kind of started Mars and planted the seeds. And he is the one, as we spoke early, who kind of seeded the prophecies of, yep. of his own arrival, which is like, okay. Yeah, it's messed up. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's it's also intimated here that the, the technologies that are gleaned from the dragon serve the emperor's purposes. Um, and this reminds me a little bit of what we talked about in First Heretic when, um, Ar when Argyll Tall and the other... Uh, word bearers went to the had that vision of the emperor's laboratory yes you know where he was making all the primarchs and you're going okay like where did he get all that tech that he didn't just know this so this to me is a connection there and saying you know what it's it may very well be that a lot of that technology came from the dragon the emperor mm. might have gleaned it from the dragon himself so or itself yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, and and you know this is one of the things I love about about 40k where it's like there no matter what you know you can get into any kind of science fiction you want, but there is this point at which all 40k lore has to like battle with folklore, right? Like, mm-hmm. what is the nature of the dragon? What does that mean? Was this all just a really big way to include fantasy battles in 40k lore somehow? Like, <laughs> all of those things feel very reasonable. Um, and that's why it's fun. You know, it's not meant to be whatever. It's just, it's just meant to be a good time. So, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, so wait, does that mean he was like Carl Franz, killed a dragon, chucked it up into Mars, and was like, I'll deal with you later? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, now, one of the most important things, you know, that Semyon passed on to her, uh, although he passes, we'll let you talk about what happens eventually here, but um, he also talks about a work called The Grand Lie of Mars. Yes. That is this huge book that's kept in the dragon's prison. And he talks about how if the things we just mentioned, the emperor's involvement even in the, you know, his kind of manipulation and creation of the mechanical, if that came out... It would just be chaos. It would yes. just it would just break down everything that had to do with Mars and the Omnisci and all that. So this book is pretty important to keep guarded here. Yeah, yeah. You want to keep it on your on your shelf, real and close. So in addition <laughs> to guarding the dragon, he's guarding the book. But ultimately, what happens with Semyon and Dahlia? Well, he shows her essentially. There's a great series of. of stories about like him like showing her like visions and basically trying to to reel her into what is going on with the emperor's grand vision you know we mm-hmm. we needed mars for this and then at the end of his little ted talk um he says and and now it's your job and we get this weird pause and she's like what the hell are you talking about so the emperor this whole time of the weaving of her fate with Zeph, the creation of the Golden Throne, and all the events that brought Dahlia to where she is was essentially to replace Simeon as the guardian of the dragon. So this was whole this whole thing was a uh, employment vetting process on behalf of the Emperor <laughs> to to find the right person for the right job, and that is Dahlia. Yes. And yes. She becomes the guardian of the dragon. It says for 10,000 years, which would bring her up to 40K, which is cool. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah. Did I did I miss anything there that you wanted to touch no, on? No, I don't think so. I, I think um, as part of that, though, is it should we talk about that one subplot with uh, the Tyrannus Knights and the Kabam machine? I think that's this is a good place to do that. Because, Please. Yeah. So earlier in the story, listeners... Uh, we are introduced to knights from the House Tyrannus, and there are three of them that are patrolling and kind of doing a, uh, I don't know, they're kind of picking up the garbage. They're, they're taking out feral servitors around this one forge. And as they're doing this on a sweep, the, all of a sudden a reactor that's close by comes under attack. Yep. And they're like, whoa, who, what? And this is their first encounter with the Kaban machine. And it just rips them up. I mean, they're trying to take it out. And this is when they first realize that the Kabam machine has void shields. And they're going, whoa. Like, all we got is these puny little night shields. We, we're just getting our butts kicked. So they retreat. You know, they report back what they saw, what was happening. Eventually, the Kabam machine 
did what it was there to do, which was destroy this reactor. Um, and so there's this ongoing thing now that these knights, these three knights, want to hunt this thing down. Yep. Because they're like... It shouldn't exist. <laughs> first of all, right. And they are, you know, they're hunters by nature. Of course. And they want to kill this thing in, in vengeance for what it did to them. So the there's a part of the story that kind of continues to talk about that hunt and that look for. And eventually these knights end up at the Noctis Labyrinthus. And they end up right when Dahlia, or right after Dahlia has been... Uh, has become the guardian. Um, and she's still got a couple of her companions that you had talked about with her. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kabam machine shows up. And you're going, well, wait a minute. How'd the Kabam machine know? Well, remember we talked about one of her companions who stayed behind in the Magma yes. City. Well, earlier in the story, uh, there was a, a Mechanicum assassin that had kind of come into the story and this assassin was working for the other side. So what she did was she went to this person and basically drilled a hole in her head to find out where Dahlia had gone. Yep. So the bad guys know where Dahlia is going. They realize what she's doing. They want her stopped. So they pass this on the kebab machine and it gets in there and is about to kill them. And these knights come in and it's just such a cool fight scene. It is just so so awesome uh and eventually uh the knights kill the caban machine and uh so that that's and then when they finish up and the story kind of goes on two of them have survived one of them has been destroyed but two of them survive and they kind of walk back out into the wilderness to see what's left of mars yeah you know, after all the other things that are going on and um, we're going to, listeners, talk about a suggested reading list. One of those stories is kind of, if you enjoyed their story in this book, there's kind of a sequel to their story. So um, mm -hmm. it, that was a really cool subplot, though, because it just kept coming up over the story. And it was like, this these these nights are pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, I mean, I... I remember that they, because I haven't, I haven't read this book in so long. Um, I remember that they had like a whole plot for knights, but it's one of those things that like, as I've gotten to know 40k and 30k more over the years, like I didn't really appreciate the, the knights plot. Like I did now of just like, oh, yes. they're just, they're just an integral part of what it means to the mechanicum just in general. Like I, I couldn't imagine this book without that plot. Yes. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, that's pretty much it. Anything else you want to wrap up for, for Dahlia's No, specific... I think that's it. She becomes the guardian. And and really cool and really fun, I thought, was that Romeo 31 becomes her protector. Yes. Uh, yes so yes. he is going to be there through the millennium with her. And that was really a cool piece because you – it just was – They had a good relationship. It's a little maudlin moment because he is just this – I don't know. It, it, his personality is just so much fun, I think. Yes. Yep. Uh, and, and that was a really good ending to to that part of the story. I agree. I think, yeah, I think that was, um, for being, you know, it, it's not expressly clear, like, how the Emperor got his hands on the Golden Throne or the Kashuk Reader or whatever. Oh, that's done the left there, but that's fine. You know, it's, it, right. it's the broad strokes is all is all here. And I like where they, they wrapped up her story. It was pretty cool. Um, 
Yes. So, with Dahlia's story out of the way, what do you want to talk about next? Let's talk about the schism. Yeah, so, as we mentioned before at the top, this is a, a full civil war amongst the galaxy, but also just personally amongst the Mechanicum, who, obviously, uh, most of them revere the Emperor as the Omnissiah, an incarnate of their mechanical deity. But there's a problem, and that is that the deal that the Emperor made with them has kind of soured for some of those tech priests. Uh, they want to explore technology that's forbidden, some of which already exists on Mars within a, uh, a sealed vault. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fabricator general of Mars has struck an accord with Horus. They've kind of had some secret <sighs> meetings. And we kind of get the, in, the the sense that Horace's machinations have been going on for some time. They they reference like, oh, there's some some trouble over on Istvan Three. I don't know what's going on over there, guys. But uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> I, I, at one point in the story, <laughs> sounds right. like someone's having a bad time. <laughs> Feel bad yep. for those guys. But uh, you know, that was basically it for a bit within the book because this this book does count or do go over a bit of time. It's not it all immediate. Um. And I think Graham really brings out the it's almost a rabid uh, avarice and mistrust and jealousy yes. on the part of Calvor Hall. I mean, it's it's virulent. That's the um, that's the fabricator general. Yeah. Of the fact that the emperor has lied to us and not or not lied to us. He hasn't given us what we deserve, you know, and that and Horus is just like, oh, this is you can just see him going. This is perfect. Yeah, and so I'm going to uh, send my buddy Regulus, who we've talked about before, was his Mechanicus representative, and he has a thumb drive. Yeah, like, what? <laughs> yes, he's got. Oh man, yeah, it is a little thumb drive. Um, basically, unlocks this vault that was never meant to be opened, but for some reason still exists for plot reasons. Yeah, uh, exactly. Ooh, yeah, within uh, <laughs> within the Mechanicum home planet, and now all of a sudden the bad guys. The Dark Mechanicum, as he calls them, yeah. um, have access to a whole new range of weapons. Uh, the first blow comes, I mean, I, I assuming they kind of mentioned the events on Istvan 3. I think it's when the full-blown thing happens on Istvan 5, roughly, mm-hmm. is when Kelbor Hall unleashes the scrap code, which we talked about in uh, No No Fear. It's yep. a, imagine a demonic software program that has its own intelligence to go in and infect and shut down things uh things like it'll make your generators go awry so they blow up i mean that's that kind of offensive cyber warfare but on mars where everything is connected and you know they all share resources and connections through power regulators and stuff when this happens it is uh anarchy the entire planet goes insane so if uh, they knew that you were on the side of the Fabricator General and therefore Horus, you got left alone. You were not touched by the scrap code or you were immune to it and it was already in your system. Mm-hmm. Anyone who they knew was opposed, like it's the kind of thing where, oh, your forge is powered by you know magma generators under the earth. We're going to just detonate them. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, what the yeah. crap? Yeah. Um, and they just annihilate like when I say forges again, these are like nation states, huge cities, metropolises where they construct the, the 
the things that go on to serve billions of imperial citizens in the war so like huge huge area to annihilate um and so a few of those places though that they were either unsure of or there was a few places that the scrap code didn't reach oh and that is just yes that is so cool because you know the thing that's weird about this to me when i you know listen to it again doug is that they they launched the scrap code they're they're underway the the heresy and the schism, the rebellion is underway, but a lot of the loyalists aren't aware of it. Yes. They really still don't know what's going on. Yep. And so Coriel Zeth, uh, you know, gets a visit from uh, Melkator, who is Kelbor Hall's emissary and this Mechanicum assassin we mentioned earlier. And it's not Malkador, is it? That's the sigil. It's it's Malkator. Malkator. Sounds like Malkador, but it's not. Yeah, it's Malkator. Yeah. And so really there's two purposes. One is to get this assassin kind of into the Magma City. But two, to kind of give her a last chance to kind of, you know, go along to get along. Because they realize that her new sphere has kept her forges protected. Yep. So this this invention that she made, the, the scrap code is useless against her. And interestingly enough, here's another really important character in the heresy, is Fabricator Locum Kane, who is like the second in command. He's like the sub uh, uh, Kel- Kelbor Hall. You know, he's yep. like the second in command on the planet. Um, his uh, forges are also immune because he has also incorporated the new sphere. So uh, they're like, well, we'd rather not fight her if we can. And basically this conversation between Melkator and and Zeth is she's just not having any of it. She's not a fool. Yeah. And she's just yeah. like, get the hell out of my place because you're talking stuff I don't want to talk about. And there's nothing you can do. So just go away, you know? Yep. And uh, so that was really important, the fact that zeth and kane were both immune uh for for until very very late in this in this story for sure and you know if we're going with our cyber warfare analogy imagine that they like used an encrypted network or something like that more so than anybody else would have just so the idea is like why is this one forge that's against us still functional they don't even need power from anywhere else because they're a magma forge they are underground they can do whatever they want yeah and so it just, it's one of those join or die moments. And I loved the conversation um, of Zeph and, and basically the posturing and that kind of stuff really came through in the audiobook format uh, from the emissary. Uh, so I don't know. It was, it was cool. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Uh, and there's something on just at the end, we're going to talk about something that actually goes on between Zeph and this assassin at the end of the book, which is also really cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and they're introducing a lot of different aspects of Mechanicum, and like their assassins are terrifying sounding. Like, oh. they sound oh, awful. <laughs> and they make they make forty k assassins seem like like trainees or something. Like, it just... yeah, <laughs> uh, super scary person. And throughout that, they're able to learn kind of where. Uh, Dahlia's location is they kind of scrap up one of her servitors and uh, not servitors her servants or her second in command the Zeph yep. and um, at that point 
it's kind of interesting. So while the the crew is descending into the Noctis Labyrinthum, it really is a slow burn on Mars. Because at first, you know, all of their major enemies are knocked out. There's a whole bunch of people who are not really sure where they're going to go. But the whole planet hasn't, like, announced a declaration to the Imperium that they're with Horus. They're kind of keeping it low-key. So even Terra, uh, where Big E is, is like, I don't, they all know there's something happening on Mars. Everyone's like, this planet is screwed, but we have no idea what's going on. Uh, Because half the warfare is digital and can't see it. Um, Where do we want to go from here? Well, I think it would be worth mentioning the two Titan legions that are currently on Mars. Yes. uh, Tempestus and Mortis. And they've always had kind of this friendly rivalry you know, the very different mindsets, very different set of ethics. Uh, but they've never, obviously, they've both been loyal. But uh, Mortis has decided once Kelbor Hall made his choices that he was going to side with the Fabricator General. And uh, it was interesting that they're, um, I'm trying to think of the, well, where am I? I'm, I got the name somewhere, the, the princeps, the lead princeps of Mortis and the lead princess of Tempestus are kind of having this, you know, kind of, they're just kind of uh, a verbal battle in this big conference that's going on. And you just knew that something was going to happen. So eventually what happens is Mortis marches on Tempestus and Tempestus is like, why are they marching on? Like, Mm -hmm. there's no... There's no active combat going on, right? Yep. And so Tempestus is totally... This reminds me a lot of Istvan Five when the loyalists are like, hey, reinforcements are here. This is great. <laughs> and yep. all of a sudden, things go way bad. And so it, it was interesting that First Blood is actually uh, drawn by Mortis, not by firepower, but they get close enough that they unleash just waves of this scrap coat in the Tempestus machines, their their Titans, and they just literally just melt. Like, yep. <laughs> there's liquid pouring out of them, and the people inside are just, their, their eyeballs are just busting, and so they didn't even have to fire a shot. They kind of walk close, and then they kind of walk away. And you're like, that was so weird. Mm-hmm. But that was the first shot that was really fired across the bow. Yeah, and and the thing is, like nobody can figure out what's going on because some of those machines didn't exist. But then also, like, where'd the code come from? Like, the, you know, what they mm-hmm. they couldn't figure it out because it wasn't an outright. I mean, we know now it was an outright act of war, but there was enough ambiguity that if Tempestus had fired, mm-hmm. they could have justified more aggression. Right, right, and this is. Uh, one of the things I think that's important about uh, the the Tempestus, the lead uh, uh, princeps, mm-hmm. is they call him the Stormcaller. That's his, or the Stormlord. That yes. is his nickname. Uh, he, throughout all of this, even though he was severely injured in this confrontation, uh, you know, he's just kept his head and he's like, hey, you know, we need to do what we need to do. And he did not fire the shots, you know, which says a lot about him in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting side things, though, about this first encounter was that the Tempestus Princeps, I'm going to get his name. I have it somewhere in the notes. I can't remember. Cavalarios. Cavalarios, yep. Yeah, he's just so cool. 
he ends up being put into an amniotic tank. Yes. To kind of get better, you know, and recover and everything. And what's weird about that, Doug, I think, is that in 40K, we think about uh, princeps and titans and that they're all in amniotic tanks. That's just the way it is. That's standard technology, right? Mm -hmm. But in the time of Mechanicum, most of the princeps refused that technology. They wanted to remain just hardwired out in the air, open, connected to their titans. Yes. And so at first, Cavalarios was very much against this. He was like, this is not going to work. I need to get out of here. But the more and more he was kind of practicing through simulations as he was healing and getting better, he realized that this amniotic connection was actually improving his connection to the machine and improving the performance of his machine and uh, his crew so that he is becoming much more uh, effective in a combat sense. And I thought that was really a cool way to introduce some technology uh, in terms of the Titans that we're used to on the 40K side, but was not anything that was very well known um, during the heresy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it, his story was really fun one of someone who he's a good character because he, he's very like determined, has a lot of grit, but the whole thing is like, he gives us great insight into what it's like to be, I don't know, in charge of one of these larger than life Titans. I mean, mm. just that he has to exert an immense amount of willpower to get it to do what it needs to do. And yes. I, I will say after like the fourth time of, of them being like, uh, Princeps Cavaleros couldn't imagine a life outside of this tub of whatever vat of junk. He, he's so connected to the machine spear. After a while, I was just like, okay, well, well documented. Move along. We understand the dude <laughs> loves his life as a jellyfish. We can yes. we get back to the plot. <laughs> That's true. But that it, is it, true. Is, it is a very cool story about his little kind of personal comeback. Yeah, and I, I think that's an interesting. Uh, there, there's a lot of back and forth between Mortis and Tempestus during the story, and that's kind of one of the subplots that we'll eventually hear. We're going to talk about how it comes to a head um, uh, as as things move ahead on Mars. So, um, at the same time, Kelbor Hall, he's attacking all these different forges because yep. he's just got millions of these now twisted, chaotic machines and uh you know just people that were normal that are now uh turned to chaos and corrupted um he knows that he needs to go to the magma city he needs to get the magma city destroyed yep. exact destroyed so he sends mortis to destroy the magma city and then he sends mortis to destroy kane and his Forge. So those two forges are the objects of uh, Mortis. And I was trying to figure it out. Their uh, princeps is called Camulus. That's his name. I couldn't, I knew I had it written down. So <laughs> Cavalarios is the guy for Tempestus, and Camulus is the princeps for uh, Mortis. Mm -hmm. um, and he is, by the way, interestingly enough, he is riding in, an, in the, the Mortis guy in an Imperator Titan. And so you think about a Warhound, and maybe a Reaver is two or three times, you know, the size of a Warhound. Um, a Warlord Titan is probably, what, 
do you think twice the size of a reaver uh yeah i would say so okay and the imperator is like massively larger than a warlord so this thing is just like unbelievably big yeah yeah i feel like half the descriptions of it are like and we were in awe (laughs) like well yeah i get it yeah crazy so that's what that's what Camulus is driving towards the Magma City, actually. Um, and uh, so we we get to the point where uh, we have... I, do you want to kind of digress or not digress? Do you want to kind of scoot over to the Loyalists, what they're bringing to the, the planet and what they're doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we kind of get... It was kind of a, a harsh gear change, but we get some discussion between Malkador the Sigilite mm, yes. and Rogel Dorn, of all characters. Now, keep in mind, at this point, the heresy is in full effect. Um, our yes. story kind of bounces around the time... Or not bounces around, but goes leaps and bounds forward in time. And so at one point, about halfway through the book, we are at the point where everybody knows there's a heresy and Rogel Dorn is charged with defending Terra. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is Mars is its neighbor and everything's gone to hell. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, essentially Rogaldord comes in, acknowledges the situation, like you know, we have assets we need to do. Two of these forges make an inordinate amount of munitions for the legions. So we have to secure that so we at least have guns and ammo to fight against Horus. Um, and they just make a very a, a bunch of very harsh tactical decisions of like, we're going to go in. We're going to grab everything we can, protect who we can. Um, we have a uh, an adept who just got a field promotion to being the Forge Master General. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And yep. Uh, we're going to just kind of take all of it and go and let Mars basically figure itself out while we go defend Terra. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially what they do towards the third act of the book is the legions are there fighting um Sigismund descent specifically, which yeah. is cool. Yeah, it was. And uh, they're just kicking tail, but ultimately, like all of our characters that we are following for this book, watch it happen, and they just abandon them for the most part. Like Zeth mm-hmm. is like full of remorse and sadness when she sees all the ships. She thought that they were gonna like go up into the sky and come back down to her forge, and they just left. So mm-hmm. they're like, "Oh, we're just like on our own." <laughs> That's yeah, not good. exactly. Um, and they just, they really struggle with that for a bit, which I thought, I thought Graham did a fantastic job of capturing that sadness of like, nobody's coming. Like, (laughs) and it's just brutal. (laughs) Oh, it's so brutal. Yeah. Yep. Cause they were all looking forward to it when they saw the ships first arrive and it's like, oh, well. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is like, we just got to hold out long enough. Yeah. We just got to hold out a little bit. And then when he leaves, it's like, oh, we're hosed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're done. Yeah, so Cain's Forge falls to Legio Mortis, and uh, again, they do extract phenomenal amounts of um, munitions and weapons, and a lot of Cain's people are evacuated as well. Probably tens of, if not hundreds of thousands, are evacuated, and they just become the first real Martian refugees to come to Earth. Yep. Uh, And then we have the battle in the magma city, which is amazing because you have Tempestus with, I don't know what, like a dozen, uh, <laughs> like a dozen Titans. And this, mm-hmm. just this Imperator alone could probably kill all 12 of them. And he's also got like 
uh, uh, um, Camulus, the Mortis guy, he's also got Warhounds and he's got Reavers. And um, Cavalarios just kind of looks at it and goes, we got this, guys. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we got this. And it was really cool. And there were knights, too. Uh, Not the two that we talked about earlier, but there was a whole other set of uh, Tarantus knights that was fighting with uh, Tempestus, which was really cool. Not no details really in the battle uh, because it's it's just so cool to read it for yourself. It's just so well done and re- um, written. Uh, but the thing that's interesting is that the only thing, if I recall right, correct me, but I think the only thing that is left after the battle is the Imperator. Is the only thing that's left standing. The yes. Count Larios and his his Titans and the Knights just do all kinds of fancy cool stuff that you can read about and just take down these Mortis engines one at a time. And then Zeth, and so you're thinking, oh man, you know, Camulus gets away and his Imperator and, and whatever. Well, Zeth, this is another cool scene. So we talked about that assassin. So the assassin comes to kill Zeth. Mm-hmm. And Zeth is like, uh, no, like, maybe you're going to kill me or you think you're going to kill me, but uh, no, it's not going to happen. So <laughs> the, the assassin shoots her and the assassin's all, you can just tell like, oh, I got you. you know. And all of a sudden she's like, wait for it. Just wait for it. Yep. So she has implanted this new spheric virus into the, into the assassin now, turn the tables. And so first thing that locks up is these stupid like flying boots that, that the assassin <laughs> Yes. And she just falls to the floor and her legs are just laying there. She can't even move because they're too heavy. And she just starts slowly but surely degrading from what Zeth has done to her. And it was so cool. And then Zeth also has started a sequence that is going to unleash all of the magma that has been um, previously utilized and channeled, you know, to power, as you said, her forge. And this magma just destroys all of the uh, dark mechanicum forces. And there's just tens of thousands of them. And the cool, I thought was cool, is that Camulus is starting to try to turn his Titan around to leave, but the magma gets to him. Yes. And his void shields and it starts melting his ankles and this imperator just falls over on his face and I'm like, Yes, this is so cool. Like yeah. it was it was great that that they ended up paying for what what they ended up doing in terms of choices. So um a really cool ending, I think, to the story. Um and it, it just just so so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it lays so much foundational um, lore for the rest of the heresy in 40k itself. Oh my gosh, yes, 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 yes. Because I mean, just about everything here, you know, at some point matters in 40k. I mean, mm-hmm. the Adeptus Mechanicus as we know it is born like it's literally not called the Mechanicus before then. No. No, it is born from this schism, and so it's it's this very cool like way to introduce what is essentially you know it's it's a it's a new faction now that they're unified behind mm-hmm. the emperor once it's all yes. said and done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know its origins are steeped in blood, just like everybody else's in 40k. It's cool. Sure. Yes, 
That is so true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have any uh, favorite parts of the book here? I mean, that's pretty much that's the broad strokes, right? We figured I out think a couple of the battles. I think the battle, the final battle between the uh, Tarantus Knights and the Kebab Machine, yeah, was really cool to me because I just loved the characters and the way they talk to each other and and their uh, interactions of these three knights. So the fact that they got some satisfaction, I thought was cool in the way this, that part of the story was written. And the other thing I did like a lot was this battle between Tempestus and Mortis at the Magma City. Yeah. Uh, just, it was so tactical too. You wouldn't think it would be tactical, but it was. Yeah, absolutely. And it was so cool the way Graham wrote uh, the battle as it progressed in different stages of the battle and so mm-hmm. forth. So, yeah, no, I thought I thought it was How absolutely you? wonderful. Did you have a couple of favorite things, or um, the battle scenes were all awesome. Like for as much uh, I guess foundational lore and cool concepts are in this book, <laughs> it's crazy to me how good the fight scenes are too. Like it's a book that doesn't want for much. No, you know what I mean. Like some books, you're like, okay, this cues a little more of this, or you know, maybe a little more, a little less action, a little more discussion. But this was just like it's got everything, and I just love it. Yes, um, my. Okay, it's a bit morbid, but one of my favorite scenes is after they figure out that the grand lie of the emperor and that it's all it's all been BS. One of Dahlia's like companions, who was there more for guilt about Jonas than anything else, right? She just literally jumps off the side of a of a cliff. She's like, "Oh, what's that? Everything's a lie." Well, I'm gonna go ahead and check out, <laughs> and then just like I can't handle it. And I actually like I was driving when I was listening to my audiobook as I was driving around, and I got to that point, and I actually just went, "Bah!" <laughs> and I just started like, <laughs> it was. I did not see that coming. I totally forgot that that happened. Oh. Uh, and so I just imagine like you know, imagine I don't know the Pope driving around his little Pope mobile, and then there's some evidence that God doesn't exist, and he's just like. Well, YOLO, and it just checks out by driving off a bridge. It's basically what happened to this poor woman. It was just like, oh. I mean, just the idea of, like, the the, the lie is so big and so ridiculous Ugh. that people's worldviews don't work with it. And it's just like, yep. that would absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I think your point, too, that a lot of people, when they read it, may not make the connection between the... Uh, reader and the golden throne yes reader was the prototype of the golden throne and i think that's so important to take from this book to understand that that was that's where it came from yes and and the thing that was dahlia's job was to create a device that amplifies psychic power it eventually goes into the emperor i mean that's but one thing, you know, because I'm not, obviously, you know, we're doing this podcast to learn together, and, and there's yes. something that I didn't quite understand. So the Astronomicon is different than the Golden Throne. The Golden Throne powers it, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. That's my understanding of it. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously it has to be, because they, they channeled the Astronomicon power to experiment on what we know as the Golden Throne. So I was just like, huh. Right. Okay. I mean, cool. It's it is separate. It's just that, I mean, the Astronomicon was there before the Golden Throne was there. That's true. It had to be. Yeah, um, you're right. Because they had. Yep. It had to be. Um, at least that's our interpretation. I think of of what we're seeing here, and yeah, the Astronomicon is still powered by psychers. I mean, there's a yes. psych, there's this huge monstrous psychic choir 
um, if we, you know, read certain books um, in the heresy, we find that out and how that all works. And, you know, part of the effect that had on that was when Magnus broke through and made his announcement to the emperor, like thousands of these choir members died on Terra. And, um, yeah, it's an interesting question I think you bring up, Doug, of how are the Astronomicon and the Golden Throne connected? What is what is the mechanic between those two things since obviously <laughs> the one existed before the other. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I don't know if you guys know, leave, please leave in the comments. I'll, I'll bring yeah. it up next time. Um, and we'll chat about it. Like, I know that they're different. I just was curious about their relationship as a more yeah casual viewer, but sure. uh, yeah, no, I, I thought it was, it's truly one of my favorite stories. I still think no, no fear beats it, but in terms mm. of a self-contained narrative, this is a fantastic book. Highly recommend. And there's some suggested reading if we could. Yes, um, please. A few stories I think that people might be interested in. So uh, two of these that I'm going to talk about are actually uh, anthologies, and there's some stories inside those anthologies. But the first story I want to talk about is a standalone short story called The Lightning Hall. Um, the Lightning Hall was basically a place where knights met to kind of, you know, you kind of think of the Space Wolves meeting around in the you know the fang meeting around a table and drinking and eating and stuff like that the lightning hall was kind of like that for nights you know okay and so uh what this short story is about it kind of follows up on those two knights who killed the caban and then walked back out onto mars to see what was happening so an interesting story if you're interested in what happened to them after uh that confrontation and, and what they found on the planet. Uh, the next story is from a anthology called Heralds of the Siege. And it is Myriad is the name of the story. If you can imagine an AI that is so powerful and its primary goal is to make things perfect. If it finds something that is not perfect, it fixes it. It wants to fix it. It's driven to do that. So imagine it runs into something that is chaos-possessed, mm -hmm. which is the absolute opposite of what this thing wants, right? And this is a story really about the Martian resistance, and it's a really cool story because it has a very hopeful ending. You wouldn't think that that would be the case, but um, I, I really recommend it if you're interested in some of the things that were going on after uh, Mechanicum when there was still, you know, a, a war going on on the planet. Uh, then the next two stories are from an anthology called The Burden of Loyalty. The first one is called Cybernetica, and it's more of a novella. Uh, it is about uh, some space marines who you think about tech marines. Where do they go to get their training? Well, they go to Mars. Right, right. And tech marines are certified uh certified Martian and sent back to their legions. Well, this is a group of space Marines that are just about to graduate and the Martian schism happens while they're on Mars. These are loyal space Marines. So you're thinking, whoa, what, what happens? Well, it's a pretty cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next story I think is very, very important to read or listen to. It's called the binary succession Mm -hmm. And it is the origin story of the Adeptus Mechanicus. 
it is when that happened. It discusses exactly the goings-on that created the Adeptus Mechanicus. Mm-hmm. And again, it is called the Binary Succession. Really good story. But if you are at all into uh, that part of 40K, or even on the 30K side, this I think it's required reading because you have that basic understanding of what's going on. So very good stories, all of them. Very nice. I, I I didn't have any more to add in terms of follow up lessons, but you know it's important to remember uh, the reason I love all these stories that we're covering initially is that so many of them are happening at the same time in the background, <laughs> and, yes. and it's just crazy to think of like at this exact moment you have the uh, space wolves going after the thousand suns. You have. <sighs> the huge betrayal that's happening and again this book covers a bit of time so it's istvan 3 and istvan 5 is when they're rogel dorn's like it'll be fine i got a whole bunch of people going to istvan 5 and so you're like chaboy you don't even know man (laughs) um so like it's right smack dab in the middle and you realize like these are just the most consequential moments and everything is bad everywhere. Right. <laughs> it's just that all. is so true. That is so true. And this book does not end in a uh, positive way. I mean, in terms of like yeah, the good guys, Space Marines got in and took everything they needed. That's the only positive end. Yeah. Other than Dahlia getting a new job. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, because right. uh, everyone we like is is dead by the end of it. And you're like, whoa. Sure. Um. But yeah, no, even even saying that, like, it's still such a good book. So, um, cool. Those are your favorite scenes. Do you have any last thoughts you want to put on there for a Mechanicus? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, just a very, very good wrap-up of a lot of different names we're going to continue to hear um, and ideas that we're going to continue to see because we're going to see the Dark Mechanicum just continuously throughout the Heresy and, and into 40K. Of course. And so knowing where that happened and, and reading the story or listening to the story of how it happened is very, very uh, revealing, I think, for a lot of people who might not know. So, absolutely, yeah, great, great stuff. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, what are we thinking of reading in next? Do you have any ideas? Uh, I don't know. I know Legion isn't always a big... Uh, favorite of people i would certainly consider that because alpha legion is one of my favorite and of course dan abnett you know can't go wrong there uh i don't know that or maybe thousand suns maybe we talk about uh you know the space wolves and the suns and um, how that, that tragic fall i don't know what are you thinking i'm gonna make an executive decision between those two i'm gonna go thousand suns that's perfect okay. i you know while we're doing these foundational things let's get all the crap that's happening simultaneously <laughs> Yes. Okay. Perfect. I think that makes a little bit of sense, but um, sure. So we'll, we'll knock that out. So if you're following along with us, Legion. I'm sorry, not Legion. <laughs> Thousand I Suns. I got you. I got you. You did. You got. It. <laughs> Thousand Suns is going to be our next book, and I. That's John French, right? I believe. I think you're right. I man, I. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I, I know he wrote the Armin series. I no, don't know if he. You no, know wrote... it is. It's Graham. Oh, cool. Yeah, Graham wrote Thousand Sons because I've got an autographed copy right here on my bookshelf, in fact. Okay. Yeah, so I know it's Graham. Yep. So, yes, we got that one, and uh, which means what? It's going to be a great book. So, anyway, join along with us, and um, I think we are good. So, with that, everybody, uh, stay safe, uh, read along with us, and the Emperor will protect you.